This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Hey, Tu, how are you? I'm good, bro. What's up, Kenneth? Such an honor to be here. I'm good. Thank you for uh, coming on. Um, I start every episode with this question. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you today? Um, Vietnamese gives me sort of a roots and identity to who I am. Um, just to kind of go a little bit broader, I'm first generation Vietnamese American and grew up in Oakland. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. So the things that I represented, I didn't see in my own neighborhood. So knowing that I'm Vietnamese gives me some sort of background or backbone to know that I belong to something. You grew up in Oakland. I grew up in mid-city LA. Um, I am not challenging where you grew up or where I grew up, but it's very similar. I grew up, you know, in the 80s was all blacks. Um, and it's it's strange. I talk about this all the time with my friends. I, uh, I, I bond with the black culture. Now, looking back, I don't probably have as many black friends, but I bond. How did you grow up in Oakland around black folk? I think it's a little bit different here in the Bay Area, given the fact that a lot of my friends were black and still to this day, my childhood friends um, are uh, are black and we're still connected to this day. But I find the group that we exist here in Oakland, at least in my network, is fairly diverse. And, um, you know, but I live in this microism, microism, if you will, um, in this bubble that exists in my neighborhoods and the schools that I went to. Um, sort of illustrating that I did see like race wars between black and white, I mean, black and Mexican and Mexican and Asian and Asian and black. Um, however, I think because I was an individual that kind of floated in between all those groups, um, I would say I felt that I was in a diverse bubble, if you will. Um, and I'm not talking about different communities. I just think the group of friends that I hung out with and the things that I gravitated towards. Um, and, and if anything, um, I would say, <laughs> I don't know if this is a positive or a negative, but I think crime existed in every community in Oakland. <laughs> you know, it was bad in the Mexican neighborhood. It was bad in the Vietnamese neighborhood. It was bad in the black neighborhood. Cause I think, I think universally across the board, we came from a refugee slash diaspora sort of experience. All of our parents were refugees. Um, all of our parents were laborers and all of us were trying to find a common struggle to make it out. Um, however, I think there are opportunities in time, like in the 90s and even now, where um, you see heightened criminal cases um, against Asian communities, against Black communities, against Mexican communities. So, And I know that's a little bit of a sensitive topic, but I mean... No, no, no. I, I actually want to get into that because I, you know, I, 
I've talked about that a lot on the show. Yeah. Why, why is the Bay Area such a target of this, you know, Asian hate? I, th I think it's always been there. Oh, really? It's always been there, bro. Um, hmm. In the communities that I exist in or the friends that I have, we didn't do that to other people of other people's of color, uh, other, other people who didn't look like us. You know, even though the group of friends that I had was fairly diverse. Um, and I think that uh, when I did see those things happen, it wasn't the people that exist in my community. Um, and, and I saw in the 90s, you know, um, they were going to Chinatown or Little Vietnam Town. And it's, it's, it's usually a person who has um, undiagnosed, unbalanced mental health. Interesting. You know, and in the 90s, just to add to that, my, my apologies, bro. Just, you know, just to give people some context and background, um, the crack epidemic height for Oakland in the Bay Area um, was in the 80s and then reflected into the um, skyrocketed homicides and murder rates in the 90s um, because it was all fueled by drugs and, and, and the suffering and, and the poverty that was happening during that time economic wise. And I see the same thing happening now in my same uh, in in the same lifetime of mine in the 2020s um once again uh rise of uh, rise of uh opioids um a crack uh, a opioid epidemic and um poverty stricken poverty for a huge population of people who can't afford to live here um and i i connect those two things mm. i think it's unfair to blame certain groups of people you know if i'm asian and then one of my friends I grew up with that happens to be Asian or Vietnamese commits a crime, I can't be held responsible for his crime. So I think it's unreasonable to to blame groups of people or hold groups of uh, different eth ethnic groups responsible. And I stand by that and I speak about that openly. Okay, so then the flip side might be addressed right now because mm -hmm. I have a question. I, yes. I, I'm constantly wondering if this has been going on forever and it's mental, yeah. issues right uh -huh. <clears throat> then this whole stop asian hate campaign that we're we're all about right is it misplaced because are we actually addressing what we need to address because stop asian hate means stop the violence on asian people but if it's been going on for all these years and now all of a sudden we're talking about it is it really gonna are we addressing the real problem that's so happening so that's the thing that that question that you're asking me is asking for a singular solution to that. And it's not a singular solution. So this issue has always happened. Mental health is a big thing. Social media has heightened people's mental health imbalances. Um, and it's in addition to the pandemic, getting people more stressed out, more mentally unbalanced. You have people like Trump corralling people's emotions to kind of direct it towards the Asian community. So Stop Asian Hate isn't just about something that's always been happening. It's targeting specifically something that's been heightening in 2020, is the fact that we had the leader of our nation, you know, our own communities, our own government bodies, specifically targeting us. And they're, they're, they're basically trying to erase us. As uh, when I say us, it's, 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 it's people of color, it's, it's, it's Asian people, um, and I feel like the same is happening with the black community. So I think specifically when we talk about stop Asian hate, it's the root of it is through white supremacy 
and Donald Trump fuel my strong, strong opinions. And I think there's a lot of, uh, to be factual as well too, there's a lot of Vietnamese Americans who don't agree with me in that regard. Um, however, that's my truth. That's what my experiences are. I'm a 36 year old man um, and I stand by my truths from how I see it, you know? Yeah, and I, I think by straddling, for me, to comment on that, by straddling sort of the world of Vietnamese people with a little bit of money and then being part of um, the street culture that I grew up in, you could see, and I'm sure you can share with this experience, you could see why the Vietnamese community is so divided, right? It's it's something that is not really spoken about because the two sides, it's very difficult for the two sides to sit down and have a conversation about this stuff. It's just very difficult to sit with our parents and or their their friends to have a discussion. So I think being Vietnamese, I think I hope you can agree with this is that um, there's generational differences within Vietnamese diaspora, older, young, first generation, third, fourth generation, right? There's that. And in addition to that, there's political division where we grew up in a democratized community. Our parents, um, um, our parents, just say the differences in our parents' generation or even a grandparents' generation, those who refugeed over here, um, there's a division between the North and the South. And that's that's a historical difference that's been been around for hundreds of years, you know. And I I think because we come from a root country history, where whether it's us or our parents, there's always been the sense of division. I, I think it's very difficult to find unity here in the United States as Vietnamese Americans and representing each other. Um, However, it doesn't slow down my efforts, my other friends' efforts, other people in the Vietnamese community space to kind of like corral a singular narrative to kind of help unify all of us to identify as one. Because when you have a strong community together, you're not just having each other's backs, but you're sharing each other's resources, you're, you're empowering each other, you're uplifting each other, you're voicing each other's voices. Um, and I, I think that's a, I don't think that's a unique issue that uh, that we experience here in the um, uh, Vietnamese American sort of narrative. I think that exists in other communities as well. Um, you know, people of middle, middle Eastern descent, you know, um, whether they're, um, you know, uh, whether it's the Israeli conflict or Palestinian conflict or Ethiopian or even um, Ghana or whatever it is, or being Korean, you know, the divide between North and the South. Um, you know, China, um, you know, for those who are, are, are more pro-democracy um, versus uh, the existing modern communist government that they have now. Not to say that one's worse than the other, but there's those political divides. Yeah, yeah. So, Holy I, shit, man. I, I thought we were going to talk about food the, for the next two hours or an hour and a half. And, you know, we're, we're cutting it up, chopping it up. This, I love well, it. Well, well, that's the thing that I kind of fell into a little bit is that... And the more I studied food, the more I started learning about people. Mm. You can't study food without the history. Love that. You see what I'm saying? Oh. Yeah, yeah. It's it's true. And when I have um, watched all the episodes and stuff that you're in, I notice a certain um, ability to articulate these thoughts, your ideas. And uh, typically, people in the kitchen, um, you know, we're, we're – worked in the kitchen space for 10 years uh, and 
and I understand it's, it's normally we're, we're, you know, we're not thinking about these kind of thoughts and the theories are like sort of like the, the theories about making the food. Where did you get this? Where did you sort of understand this way to, uh, to explain things? That's a great question, bro. Um, I'm not a college graduate. I didn't go to college. Um, right after high school, I wanted to be a chef. So I went to culinary school. Um, and and with, within that, I really lacked the ability to write and speak. And it took me a few years to go down the road, um, getting into management positions and learning that I lacked ways to express myself, articulate mm-hmm. things, um, to manage a team. And um, oftentimes because I lacked those abilities to articulate, it translated into frustration, um, whether with my team and whether with myself. Um, and thanks to, um, at the time I happened to be a GM. I wanted to work, I wanted to step out of the kitchen, learn how to GM and do front of house stuff. I, I worked at Saul's Deli, which is a Jewish delicatessen in North Berkeley, <laughs> like super random. Um, but the owners approached me and they love my passion and my ability to work. However, I lacked leadership and speaking abilities. Um, and it's through their recommendation that um, I learned how to speak and write. So I think first is to learn how to speak. Um, so uh, through their suggestion, I started taking Toastmaster classes. So I'm like this tatted up kid, tatted up kid, you know, everyone in a Toastmasters club. By the way, Toastmasters is a nonprofit club that you can find in almost any library in the nation. There's like thousands of them all over the nation. And people who are a passionate volunteer that time to teach other people how to speak. So there's, um, it's usually a room full of retired CEOs, white, <laughs> um, like in their 60s and 70s. And they're super passionate about speaking. I went in there with a notebook and notepad, made friends with a bunch of old people. And through the course of the months, I learned how to speak. So I did it in a formal way. Now and you all make sense. You make sense to me now. I completely see where this is going. You know, and then that kind of just translated into other things. Um, you know, I started doing pop-ups and at the pop-ups that I was doing, pop-ups are underground, uh, here in the Bay Area, pop-ups are underground dinner parties, you know, play 80s, 90s, R&B, hip-hop, all that stuff and do a tasting menu in an informal space, whether it's garage or like a closed restaurant, whatever it is. Um, but the food that I was cooking was Vietnamese food as the way my mom experienced it as a refugee woman and people didn't know what the hell they were eating. So naturally, I had to stand in front of people's tables and tell them what the fuck they were eating, so they so they couldn't talk shit. And you know that thing led to another thing. Um, by doing that, um, you know, I met some media folks that were like, "Wow, you're a great storyteller. Let's uh, let's do a commercial." From doing a commercial, led to like um, doing a short doing a short film. From doing a short film, um, people started inviting me to colleges to speak. I did uh, the art institute. They, they they invited me to be like the graduation speaker, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, you know, I didn't, people invited me into classrooms. I've been invited into prison to speak. Um, so I, I feel that, and, and just for the record, you know, like I, I have this sort of um, imposter syndrome sort of vibe um, because I went to, because uh, I grew up in Oakland and I felt that um, even though I wanted to be an academic in my adolescence. I just wasn't. I never felt smart enough, you know. And um, you know, just just it's just very interesting how um, I, I think I went 
more towards people's suggestions than my own thought that I was great at something. And it wasn't until recently where I felt that I um, can speak and write, um, not eloquently, that's the wrong word, but, but at a, uh, um, and articulate in a way that, 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 that would impact people. And, and, you know, I find, I find many blessings in that, but I think also is that maybe it's because I never blew smoke up my own ass. <laughs> maybe that provided my feel to take things more seriously and, and, and study more and read more. And, and that's my approach for a lot of things is that, you know, I, I, I remove the pride out of myself. Um, I, I, I remove the, the opportunity to feel humiliated when people is, when people are trying to teach me something, I remove all of that and I, I act as if I'm a five year old and I ask a fuck ton of questions. And I think by me removing that from my life, I've found that I've been able to learn a lot better. And you know, I think this is an old saying, like, you know, if you would just shut the fuck up and listen, you would learn a lot more. You know, so I think it's that sort of perspective that. I've, I've learned to embrace that has helped me in my speaking abilities. So, you know, given the fact that I, I didn't go to college. Yeah. I, that's one thing that stands out when, you know, I've spent time watching you, you're really into explaining what people are tasting and what people are eating. So it's, so it's a big, um, and then I've, I've watched, you know, your father and your, your, your mother, uh, both, you know, very, um, they came to America and they did very basic, um, you know, jobs, cooking and, and sewing. And, you know, I felt like when I grew up in the window coverings industry, we were making draperies and my dad and I were installing drapes. And I hated being around my father's work because it was just so, uh, I just felt it was such a menial sort of like labor intensive but watching you and your father and your interaction and, you know, he was a cook at a, I think it was a hotel or at a, at a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. How did you, how did you come to grips? I mean, did you ever have any embarrassment or why would you go into your father's, um, and I'm asking from my own, you know, sort of point of, point of view, why would you go into your father's um, work and, and his background? I think a lot of us, um, people of color, specifically Vietnamese immigrants, we come from a place of self-shame a lot. I find that referencing Jewish community and even the black communities, like the, the people in that space that I admire, I found that they own their narratives. Hmm. And by owning their narratives as a community, they've been able to reclaim it. And I think I came to a point where I was looking around in my Vietnamese community and no one was really talking about the essence of being Vietnamese. Um, in particular, my parents about the Vietnam War or the struggles that we have and exist here. Everyone was talking about, even my aunties and uncles, being luxurious, getting Gucci and Chanel when you can't afford it, you know? Living in Laguna Beach, you know, when, <laughs> when, when, when you, it's really not within your means. And I, I felt that it took me a while to process, and I think it's thanks to my community here in Oakland and having those sort of conversations, I started to understand that, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a lack of identity of anything. It was the Vietnamese community attempt to assimilate to be more American, and they were trying to forget these like very deep, painful, dark scars. 
even though I may look intimidating to some, I'm a big dude, tatted up, like I always have a hoodie on. But, you know, I, I, I've been able to find that I, I engage with my Vietnamese elders, whether I know them or not, and asking sort of these beautiful questions about how they came here and what their story was. And, you know, looking around in the media space, whether it's in food or Netflix or whatever else, I felt like that was such a lacking narrative that no one really talked about it. Um, and once again, you know, like I'm referencing Jewish diaspora, yep. we Vietnamese people experience genocide. You know, if you don't call spraying Agent Orange over millions of people genocide, I don't know what the fuck you call it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like they, they try to exterminate us, period. If you don't call the Khmer Rouge a genocide, which is right next to neighboring Vietnam, like there's a lot of shit that happened on the border of that a genocide or, or, or the attempt to wipe a, a certain group of people out. I don't know what the fuck you call it. Yeah. You know, and I really related to the Jewish experience where they owned that. They, they, they were honest about it. They cried together. They came together as community, you know? And I, I think in the most genuine way, I yearned for that for our Vietnamese community. Because I think in hearing their story, it wasn't just a story about them. It was just a, it was a story about the human experience. It was a story about suffering. And I was like, wow, my family suffered too, you know? Um, sound like you spent a lot of time with, uh, within the Jewish community. So, you know, obviously the Black community, but sounds like a lot of time spent with the Jewish community. So the Jew, you know how I told you I worked at that place called Saul's Deli? So yeah. Jewish a deli in North Berkeley. That was my first exposure to the Jewish community and they played a huge role in my life. They came into my life when I was about 23, yeah, about 23, 24 years old. Um, and I, I think that's the first time that I found uh, narrative and history that intertwined with food in the most organic way. I'm not talking about like my grandmother grew the best tomatoes. None of that bullshit. We're talking about, you know, um, we, we, you know, I'm talking about like we were starving, you know, and all we could eat, you know, for a month was matzo crackers, that type of shit, you know? Stripped down, um, like keeping it really, really real. Yeah, man. And even though my, uh, even though I'm not a Vietnamese refugee, that's what my parents were. Um, I guess my connection with that, whether my parents want to admit it or not, it's it's it's, it's you know for some or for most, it's 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 hard to be vulnerable. But I grew up hungry like a motherfucker, bro. You know what I mean? And you know, I had this reputation with my aunties and uncles and other family members. Every time I go over their house. You know, I would always ask for second or thirds. You know, I was hungry, but at, at the same sadness of that, and the flip side, I didn't have food at home. You know, why didn't you have food at home? So I grew up in a food insecure community, if you will. My parents were both laborers, and I think you can relate to this too. No matter how how poor your parents are, the fact that they made it here, they're sending money back home to Vietnam. Period. Yeah. You know what I mean? So both my parents. You know, given at the time they were making minimum wage, in actuality, they were probably making half of minimum wage because that wasn't their money anymore. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I think that's a struggle that people don't understand. You know, they're not just taking care of themselves, but because they're children of war, 
or war expats or war refugees, you know, there's a whole community back home in Vietnam that's relying on them for survival. Um, so I, I felt that, and let me give you a reference. Let me give you an example of what poor meant to me, because uh, everybody has different references of what Relative, poor. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's whatever. It's perspective, right? So for me, everyone's childhood is filled with, man. My mom, my mom makes this dish, you know, during the holiday. Blah, blah. Bro, we didn't celebrate the holidays. Christmas, Christmas, you know, Thanksgiving, you know, we'll be lucky to celebrate. My, my parents aren't celebratory because we couldn't afford to be celebratory. And the meals that I had growing up was, this is the thing that I remember. And I, I remember going to culinary school and I remember crying, being upset about the shit. I, I felt like I didn't, I, I feel like I didn't fit in here, bro, because all these kids got these white memories or these, these privileged memories of like having a dinner. I, I didn't, I, I don't have anything like that. You know, my memory of, of food was that, so check this out. My mom, my mom used to go to the butcher market, whether it's like the Mexican grocery store nearby, the Asian one across town, whatever it is. And in those days, you know, this back in the nineties is that you could get, you can ask for chicken bones for free because they never sold chicken bones. They used to throw chicken bones away all the time. My mom would take that home and make soup. And that was a good day when they had it. And I tell you, you know, I tell you like a, a sad truth for myself, bro. If we had anything on the table, it was rice. I ate so much rice. I'm talking about just rice and maybe like soy sauce and shit, not even like egg. I ate so much rice where I had to go to the doctor because my my fucking stomach was uh, plugged up and I couldn't shit for like a week. <laughs> bro, that's that's a lot of rice, bro. But that's 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 what happens to you when that's just all the rice you eat, bro. You know, and, and I think people, uh, just to give people context, and I'm not asking for a sob story by any means. I'm I'm great right now. Yeah. Um, just to give people context, um, you know, my parents are two people who suffer from PTSD. You know, so within all of this, I struggled with my parents. My parents struggled with me, and I thought it was the norm for the longest time. And it wasn't until when I started dating, you know, when I started hanging out with other friends, starting meeting people from other communities outside my own that are a little bit better, right? Yeah. And I started to see like, wow, my, your family complex is so nice. You don't have eight locks on your door. Your windows aren't nailed shut. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's all stuff that, you know, that that's the way PTSD affected my dad. Oh wow, your your dad doesn't trip if you know somebody closes the door too hard. You know, it wasn't until I started to see the complexes outside my own family, where I where I started to question. I'm like, wow, there's something wrong with my family, and that's why I go so much deeper in the narrative, because I'm trying to find out why I'm here, why things are the way they are, and how things exist. You know, unlike other people's parents my mom didn't my parents didn't say they didn't tell me anything about the war in Vietnam you know and finding it out later in my adult life I'm glad that they didn't because that shit was horrific yeah no. that that's why I do this podcast because I I wonder what the Vietnamese experience is all about because it's now I'm what I'm learning nearly after 70 episodes so far that it's very different for different 
stratas of the Vietnamese population, we have some very privileged and entitled um, sectors of our of our community. And then there's, you know, there's the hood folk that grew up in the inner city and exposed to a very different sort of life. And there's everything in between that too. But well, um, I, I, I could I could guarantee you this. In, in 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 those communities or individuals who 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 come from a strain of more privilege, I could guarantee you it's education. You know, mm. my father. You know, um, you're saying that the, the 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 thing that is similar to all of them is how educated they are. Yes, I find that more privileged they are, the more educated they are. And I, I don't mean to belittle, but I think education gives you access to opportunity. That's just a fact. Hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. That's why they push it so hard in Asian so culture. Yeah. And just uh, you know, just just to state a fact that my father, and I, I, by no means do I want to embarrass my father, but this I think this is a truth that I feel that a lot of people should hear is that my father is to this day he's he's illiterate. You know, he has like a second grade um, reading level um, in Vietnamese. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Because he's been a laborer his whole life. His father died when he was like in his mid-30s, about my age. I'm 36 right now. His father died at my age right now, you know? And he being the eldest male of his the entire family, he had to go to work. And I think at that time he was maybe like 13 years old. Shit. So said, yeah. All he knows is to grunt and grind. It doesn't make him... Um, ignorant it doesn't make him unintelligent he just never had the opportunity to have access and you know the reason why i mentioned that is because prior i mentioned that i went into san quentin i think i mentioned i went into san quentin and work with um incarcerated men no 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 i haven't heard i want i would love to hear that so storytelling led me into prison to work with incarcerated men, not not as a prisoner, <laughs> as a civilian, as a civilian, a civilian volunteer, as a civilian volunteer, um, to work with incarcerated men, and I met men in there who are incredibly intelligent. They just never had access to opportunity to um, to get edu educated. Yeah, it's everything. It, it's an interesting point because there's plenty of people that come from money but don't have that sort of. Um, mobility the social mobility as an educated person because anywhere you go if you're an educated person you have a lot more access yeah because you know how to analyze you know how to articulate and express your thoughts and ideas and all those things just those two things combined together gives you opportunity because you're putting it out there you know that that that's almost the most beautiful thing about being in america i feel like the the tatted up hood wearing hoodie wearing uh chef that didn't go to college but can articulate and can visualize and can eloquently put out ideas is just as equal or as powerful as somebody who studied but that, that doesn't happen other in other places like asia i feel it's different you know you you don't get you don't get to be able to have uh, I, it's changing. I'm, I'm not going to blanket statement this, but it's changing. But I, I think growing up, um, as I was going to Vietnam a lot, I, I realized that you're either this or you're this, but you're never both. Yeah. And and that, that's something I want to talk about in the show. It's like when I see you, it's like you're both. You're able to really be able to articulate the ideas of the food, 
as well as really have this sort of sense of, you know, Oakland and you own it, you own that narrative. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. And I think in Vietnam, it's starting to happen. And when you have these two things, the ability to sort of be raw and, 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 you know, and, and at the same time, articulate your thoughts and have it both show it's very fluid. It's, it's awesome to watch. I, I appreciate that. I think it might be a result of my confusion of my identity. You know, like I, I didn't know if I was Vietnamese because I didn't look Vietnamese. You know, I didn't know if I was part of my Oakland community because in my community I didn't I didn't look like anybody else. And I think it's sort of the mesh of the two. Yeah. But if anything, I, I encourage this for um, for all little boys and girls, if you will, um, for even all adults as well too. Um, I, I think the most important thing is to be yourself. Um, I think we get overwhelmed with media a little bit too much. We watch movies or we read books and it inspires us to be a certain way. You know, like I, I find too often that um, my male counterparts and my male colleagues, they're trying to emulate uh, Anthony or, or Bourdain or Thomas Keller, you know, or uh, not that they're bad figures or whatnot, you know, or they try to emulate like, I don't know, some other cool chef that they they, they want to be, which isn't a bad thing, but I think it's also very important to draw the line of being inspired and then being yourself. Yeah. Well, Bourdain was a bad motherfucker, though, man. He, you know, he had that sort of street sense and he kept shit real, but he was able to really articulate. Say it again. It was, oh, I said those people are great because they are themselves. Yeah. There, there won't ever be another Anthony Bourdain. And Anthony Bourdain isn't, you know, isn't Thomas Keller and and and, right. and Tupac meshed together? It just doesn't work like that. It's he's he's inspired by, but he's his own person, and he yeah. had this fearlessness to be himself. And that's what I'm trying to encourage other people too. Is like it's okay to be inspired, but you know, don't don't be afraid to be yourself because I think that is more unique more than anything. Because I think yourself, myself, we all have very unique stories. We just don't have to know how to tell it. You know, I, I want to get into Top Chef and I want to get into all these other uh, narratives. <laughs> you have to. If you, if you, if you, oh, good. It's all good. I'm just talking shit. I'm just talking if shit. You're beating that shit. If you've beaten that horse to death, you know, we don't have to get into that. But what, I, what, I, what I do want to talk about early on right now is sort of this idea of boundaries in terms of food, right? When I think about the food landscape, sometimes I think, shit everything is so we've seen everything and we've we've are, are experiencing everything everything's like like what's the next what's the next frontier like a pill that you put in your mouth and you fucking just have the rainbow you know uh, a, a whole cornucopia of flavors but it's not that it's not that simplistic right but i'm constantly figuring out and and trying to talk to people in the food business like what is What's next for you? What's the like the next frontier of, of food? That, that's a great question. I float into I float in this, this sort of like the AI and the robotic space um, as a consultant and an advisor, and I, I find a lot I find it to be um, very stimulating. I think mainly because when you talk about the future and innovation, I think there's an opportunity to save humanity, you know, make things more accessible, all that stuff, all that stuff, etc. Um, and I think there's I think once again with TV narratives, I think people really get carried away with it sometimes. Um, Elon Musk is trying to scare everyone. <laughs> I think um, I have faith in humanity. I have faith in people. I have faith in scientists. I have faith that scientists, engineers, architects, archetypes, whatever they want to call them, 
they will build technologies that will um, empower human beings opposed to eliminate them. It just wouldn't make sense why you would build AI or robots to um, replace us. It's, it's complete bullshit. Like that's the stupidest thing you could ever do. That's that's movie bullshit to me, kind yeah. But the smarter thing to do, and have some friends here in the Bay Area, like in a tech space where, you know, I, I geek out and I talk about AI with them and all that stuff and future robots and all that stuff. What people are trying, I think the direction everyone is trying to gear towards is that um, how are we going to build technology to lengthen our lives, make us stronger, make us more prettier, um, you know, make us more healthier. I think that's where AI and robotics lie. And I think where food comes into that is that we are human beings. We enjoy the experience of eating food. I'm convinced that we would never use technology to take that away from ourselves. Hence, you know, eating a pill like Jetson style. I don't think that will ever happen. I think chefs can, I think chefs can do that at this moment as of 2021, but I'm telling you like, it's not going to be popping. (laughs) 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 Because people still really enjoy like a fucking kicking bowl of pho that's like prepared the way the old country did it. Yeah. And also, um, I think there's things where I think when you start to take that experience away from people, it starts to be dehumanizing, you know, we're, we're humans and, and eating is such a, 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 a human right that everyone yeah. should have. You see what I'm saying? So I, I don't think it'll go that sort of way. I, I think if anything, we'll do it to be more efficient with our farming practices, with our agriculture. Um, so, so that way we could be more resourceful and won't deplete our Earth's resources. And if anything, you know, spacey type of shit, you know, Elon Musk type of stuff, we'll learn how to do that on another planet. Yeah. There, there's a book, I think the author's name is Peter Diamandis, and he wrote a book uh, called Abundance. And they talk a lot about, you know, green power and farming techniques that are vertical, you know, vertical yep. um, warehouse t- t- type stuff. Yep. And how we're actually getting better as the years go on with protecting the environment, all this technology of cleaning up CO2 and yep. all these farming practices. So it's not as bleak as it sounds. And sometimes I think um, there's complex narratives that we're we're not really allowed to kind of get into because, you know, everything is sound bites. It's like three minutes, two minutes on the news, BBC or CNN. But when we get to talk like this, we can really get into the practice because I hope like in another year, two years from now, you and I can get back on this and we can talk about your AI, you know, work and talk about, you know, the way things have developed in the future. Absolutely. 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 Um, I, I think there's a lot of space for that. And I, I think we're just scratching the surface for that. By the way, I did work with a vertical farm called Plenty. And I'm telling you the greens that they grow out, out of that thing. They sent it, to, they shipped it to me via mail, or I think it was UPS. I'm not promoting UPS, by the way. I want to make that very clear. <laughs> Another level on the taste? Um, it was super crispy. I kept it in my fridge for another week and it didn't wilt, you know? Um, and I didn't have to wash it because they don't grow it in soil. 
Um, but it was great, man. I, I thought it was a great product. Um, and they're gonna, I think they're gonna start to do strawberries as well. And I think the great thing about that is that they can grow a lot and it's super cheap. So I think around that narrative, it's not about, it's not just about having a good quality product, but it's, it's about access. How do we innovate to make things cheaper? You know, I think this formula of doing new things and having the price go up, I think that's a, that's a dangerous path to go down. Um, but it's like the iPhone, right? Say, for example, like mobile phone, like you got, you remember like this, the super small V star <laughs> Motorola phone. I remember that came out when it first came out, it was 1500 bucks. And yeah. all I could do was dial a number. Now we have the same thing about, you know, with more technology, more offering at the same price, if not cheaper. Yeah. Um, they said something about the, uh, these, these, uh, space shuttles that used to go, um, in the eighties up, up into the space. One of our iPhones is the far, far, far more advanced than the space shuttles that went up to. to That's play. crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, the computing power of a an iPhone today will is a, like many, many times greater than a space shuttle's uh, technology. It's crazy, right? Crazy, bro. Yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah. what what do you uh, like to eat um, on your own time? What kind of foods do you like? Bro, um, just got married, by the way. Oh, you know? congratulations, man! I was I wanted to ask you about that too. Thanks, man. Put a ring on her. She put a ring on me, so it's official. All that stuff. <laughs> the ceremony, it's in the paper. You know, it's, it's on paper. All that stuff. Um, but shout out to Jean, my wife. Um, she is Hawaiian Japan. She is Japanese Korean, born in Hawaii, but grew up in LA. So just in her experiences alone, the food's fire, man. And then just for lunch today, my favorite thing. For us, I think I love it even more than she does, but I love uh, sort of the cross-culture that we do between Sam um, and Goiko, which is summer rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sam is basically the Korean barbecue, mm-hmm. you have the banchan, but opposed to rice paper, you wrap it in a big leaf of lettuce and then sesame leaf and stuff like that. Yeah. And then Goiko, which is summer rolls, we'll have a similar layout, but opposed to all that stuff, you do herbs, rice, lettuce, some sort of meat, and you wrap it with rice paper. So we do a little cross-culture of the both. So we do some with rice paper, <laughs> which is super dope, man. It's uh, so good. Yeah. Where, where did you meet your wife? Um, she's from LA. And then I was, um, I go down to LA a lot for like events and stuff. And she was mutual friends with my chef buddies. And we just kind of started talking, hanging out at a party and you know, I said some smooth things and she responded. Yeah. <laughs> I think for, I think for a full year, we had a long distance relationship, mm-hmm. I think a little bit over a year. And then, you know, in, in efforts to, um, uh, to maintain our relationship, you know, I, I confessed my love for my wife <laughs> or my then girlfriend. Um, and then we made it a point to move in together. And I think uh, as of today, not as of today, but um, as of March, we hit the four-year mark. Congrats. So, Congrats, man. And, Thanks, man. and she moved up to Oakland. Correct. She moved here to the Bay Area. Right? Yeah. What, what, what's her experience and the difference between Oakland and L.A.? She, you know, so we, we don't explore Oakland as much. Um, mainly in the hood areas and all the places I, I hung out and grew up with. She didn't get the full experience of that until um, I took Here Magazine to a, through a tour through Oakland. 
And I went to a sandwich shop called Bailea. And that's on, um, I believe it's on East, uh, I think it's on East 12th and then 21st, 20th Ave. And in, 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 in that intersection there on that block, the first comment she's seen, I mean, the first comment that came out of her mouth, she's like, there's so many prostitutes in broad daylight. Um, and that's the first time my wife saw that neighborhood as well too. And she was all like, wow, this is worse than Compton. Potholes everywhere, daylight prostitution, um, drug dealing in the daytime. I'm not trying to over-exaggerate it. Maybe that's just a bad day that we went no, on. I've, I've been I've been to that pocket. It's or yeah, or like a Tuesday afternoon. And my response to them was, "This was way better than it was in the '90s when I was growing up." So, I think in her experience, what she thought of the Bay Area. Was actually just San Francisco in the ferry building. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And for those of you who don't know, the ferry building is like this touristy spot, you know, uh, decked out on the pier where there's a bunch of like high spend, high luxury businesses. You thought the Bay Area food scene was a slanted door. Yeah, I thought the Bay Area food scene was a slanted door. So she didn't know all about that. Um, and I think as we got to know each other more, I think if anything that that kind of like circled back to my story and growing up and um her understanding sort of my pathway to uh to who i am today so it's not that i'm embarrassed in any sense any means but i think it's um for her it was very fulfilling and meaningful to understand where her husband comes from and, and, and what aspect of it what what did you think about doing when you were growing up? You're like, oh, I'm gonna go to college or I'm gonna play football. I mean, what what was going through your mind? Like like real talk, the way because my parents are both laborers. Yeah. Ever since I was little, I would say coming up to my high school years, my parents were gearing me up to be, uh, you know, to work in a warehouse. Like they're already gearing me up to like. My mom was a seamstress. She was already gearing me up to go work, you know, with her in her in, in her seamstress factory. Damn. Um, and my father was a fishmonger. He didn't want me to do that, but you know, I think the opportunity was there if needed. Um, just to give you some context, like um, in high school, I was really bad, like really bad. Like all my homies now are either locked up or dead. If they're not locked up or dead, they're they're at least they have families. It's either one of the three, you know. Um, like I I, I rode I rode with some. I don't. I don't want to say they're bad people. It's just that's what Oakland was. Right. That's how everyone existed. Like, you know. Um, and I don't want to get too much into that, um, respectfully. Um, but my parents were already gearing me up to be a laborer, and the fact that I wanted to go to culinary school, my my my, my mom's mind melted. She didn't think I was capable because, in essence, they didn't. They don't think themselves of being capable. Of, of, of Wait, culinary school was like way beyond what they thought you should have been deserved that you sh you deserve to do it's not it's not something that i deserve to do but they they couldn't fathom that you see what i'm saying yeah like the sort of the way i grew up is that you know if you have if you got a job it's good enough and you got to remember like it's it's sort of a poor mentality you know when you're poor you don't dream yeah, man, you just don't. Um, and I, I think that's sort of a context where I was coming from, and um, I'm not mad at my parents for it. It's just um, that's what it is. What it is. 
it is what it is. And I, I think I'm very blessed for my parents to have raised me. Absolutely, right? Feed me, be there for me, all that stuff in the capacity they were able to give. But it was really the people in my community who gave me that extra push. My basketball coaches, my mentors, you know, my teachers. So, so given that sort of context, you know, I was actually in honors classes in high school. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I took AP physics in high school. I was in honors English and history, all that stuff. Um, but still, given that, like, it, I don't think it makes me a great writer or a great speaker. I, you know, I had something, right? Um, and kind of sort of adding to that, my parents weren't expecting me to do much coming out of high school. And given the fact that I was locked up in junior, I was lo- I got locked up in junior year and I was out of I was out of high school my whole entire junior year because oh, my dad kicked me out of the house. Um, yet I still graduated with a 3.2 because when you're in honors classes, made up uh, for it. Yeah, it, you know, because because uh, I uh, uh, a D counts as a C, a C counts as a B, and a B counts as an A, and so forth, right? <laughs> weighted uh, GPA. Yeah, weighted GPA. So I think it's one of those things where. Um, I felt that if, if uh, I guess, given my circumstances, it, it really gave context to the person I am today, where I can be articulate and then be a little bit rough around the edges. Though, but, you know? but what did you want to do? I mean, up until you made a decision in culinary school, you must have had thought, hey, when I get out of this, you know, period in my life i want to do something beyond it or did you not have any sort of dreams so in high school i think the thing that changed my life in high school was i somebody passed a book along to me called alchemist hmm. right and i think for most people for all people who read it actually that's where if you don't if you never dreamed if you never dreamt before that book will encourage you to dream absolutely um, that book Alchemist, I think I read it like in ninth grade, 10th grade, you know, and I, I think it illustrated a world for me beyond my own, you know, beyond the city that, that I came from and, you know, just, just, just creating chapters, adding chapters to the book of my life in another place. Um, and I think the thing that I thought that would take me to those sort of places was cooking. Um, cause I think my understanding of cooking in that sort of meeting beyond my mom's kitchen was seeing things on Food Network, you know? Um, these chefs with these built up at resumes that they traveled the world and came back and opened a restaurant. Like I, it was such a romantic narrative. Um, and I, I think in some essence, um, that's sort of what I wanted. I wanted to be able to live the life that my parents didn't live. Okay, so this was an early awareness that you wanted to get into food because of the food network, the chefs that were sort of resume stacked and you're like, okay, this is a way to ticket out. In addition to that, you know, I've always watched my mom cooked. You know, I, I really loved cooking with my mom. Um, all of my uncles, my dad's friends included who were um, successful entrepreneurs, every single one of them had a restaurant hmm. and, you know, in their, uh, in their, um, in their Claiborne suits <laughs> and their Vietnamese and their, uh, in their brown loafers, you know, with no socks. Like I, to me, that was my, um, in my immediate family, that, that was my um, pinnacle of success. 
because I saw success from them. And I thought that was the way to go. Um, and um, I, I think that was just embedded in me early because that's what I saw. But as I got into high school, I think it got more enamored, understanding that you didn't have that. Re- there was there weren't just restaurant owners, but there were restaurant chefs. Um, so that narrative kind of grew with me every year in high school. Um, and you know, I would cook my homeboys. You know, we like go to Safeway. You know, at two in the morning, get a bunch of chicken and barbecue. You know, after we were out partying all night, whatever it is. Um, and then we would go back to our house. So I, I did that all throughout high school, and I, I just loved to cook. So coming out of high school. You know, I, I, I was very um, convinced that that was my calling because I've always thought about it. And then you decided to go to chef school, culinary school. And by, by the way, by the way, my culinary school was shut down because of fraud. <laughs> <laughs> Super fucked up, right? Like, but did you finish so, the program? I did. Yeah. But later on, it was shut down because of fraud. Um, I think everyone in my class who paid for their tuition, a lot of them got their money back. <laughs> oh, shit. Did you yeah. get your money back? No. Because yeah. I, you know, I think it's unfair because I think at the time I was, I think the lawsuit came about, I think, when I was a GM at Saul's. And being a GM at Saul's at 23, 24, you know, I was doing okay. Um, so they didn't give me my money back, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, culinary school to me is sort of like film school, right? Any sort of like people can go, anybody can sort of go to film school or, or culinary school, not every culinary school, or not every film school, but you can basically learn it, right? But when you say 90% of people that go to film school or culinary school or any type of school that deals with, you know, art don't reach where they need to go, right? And then coming from your background, going through culinary training, how the fuck did you, in your mind, go, I'm going to get to that place? Or was it something that you just kind of pieced together along the way? Because being put on the map is a very difficult thing, right? It's just a very, in in any kind of art uh, practice. Very difficult. So, so how, did you, how did you know that you were going to be able in your head to get there? Or was it just, you just kept doing things and you, you got there? I think this is the way I think about things is that, you know, you could tell me if I stand at a hoop and I shoot it 10 times yeah. that I'll probably will make it two out of 10 times. Right. But that's because you're telling me that I'm the kid that would break in afterwards at night and I'll shoot a hundred hoops until I hit, until I make all 10 baskets. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? I think that's the way you got to look at the world. Like if, if someone puts a a statistic on me, you know, that makes me amp up even harder. So that way the 1% that I have would be at the, you know, I'll nail it eventually after like a million shots or whatever. You see what I'm saying? Like I do, you know, like, I think it's all about, and I think that's what people call determination. Yeah. I use, I like to reference E40 a lot. E40 has been in the game. That's, that's, we call him, um, you know, uh, the governor here around here, you know, <laughs> he's, he's the true governor around here. Um, and the thing is, was that he, he was 
so determined and dedicated to do what he wanted to do and the things that he envisioned that he was in industry, I think, what, 30, 40 years now? Can you tell us who E40 is for people who don't know? If you don't know who E40 is, you should not be watching this podcast. (laughs) Sorry, man. Like, just my, you know, like my aunties know who E40 is. Come on, man. Like, Jesus. There, There are, you know, believe it or not, there are Vietnamese kids that are listening to this stuff in Vietnam in English and they speak perfect English and they were born, you know. No, 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 no. I'm going to stop you there, bro. I, I visited my cousin. Yeah. I visited my cousin on Fuquak Island um, back in, what was it? 2012. No, no, before that. It was 2009, right? Yeah. And we pull up to her house. You know, in Vietnam, especially on Phu Quoc Island, which is like one of the small islands in Vietnam, they don't have front doors. They just have like this big walkway into like this like like uh, 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 railroad style like apartment loft thing sort of thing. Yeah. You know? And you know what the first thing she was slapping? She she had on blast. And this is 2012 in Phu Quoc before before they renovated. You know, she was playing Keisha Cole, bro, like super loud. Super loud. <laughs> Cole and E40 is like, you know, for all I'm, it, it's generations apart from each other, right? Yes. And and also considering Keisha Cole's from Oakland too. So I was like, no way she ain't playing Keisha Cole. And, and I think, um, I, 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 not, not, not to, uh, I'm not trying to avoid from answering that question at all, but I, I just want to give some context is that, I'm very proud of the Vietnamese economy on the young people, young generation. I think it's over 60% now mm-hmm. where uh, a Vietnam's population is under 30 years old. Yeah. Um, so they're very online. They're, I think they're very hip hop, right? I feel like Vietnam's going to be the new next South Korea, bro. We, like, we talk about that all the time on the show. I, I I wanted to super surpass the the Korean, you know, I'll put it out there. I, I say that all the time from our it will. It's not too far off, bro. It's not too far off at all. Yeah, we we. It's our time, our bro. Time. Check this out on my on my Shopify store, right? Both both of the apps that I have from my Shopify store that I use religiously to make it look nice and all. It's based in Vietnam, bro. I was mm-hmm. like, no way. Like, I think the tech sector is blooming. The music sector, the art sector, um, the hip hop culture is fire right now in Vietnam. Crypto. Is huge. Cryptocurrency is huge in Vietnam. I have a woman that I'm. Uh, I don't know if you fuck with crypto, but you bro, know? I, I, I'm on Doggy Coin. We've been winning this week, bro. Winning this week, bro. I think I think yesterday hit forty cents, man. So you 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 trade on Binance, right? Or, yep. Okay. So I reached out to some people in Vietnam, and I was like, I'm looking for a crypto. Somebody who can explain this shit in Vietnamese, right? Because I do yeah. podcasts in Vietnamese. One of my boys said, yeah, yeah, meet this, you know, brother named Robert, right? So Robert and I talked, but Robert's from Australia. We talked and I was like, I, I just want to, I just really, I want my mom to understand crypto from yeah. native language, right? Yeah. And so Robert's like, I got this person. You ever heard of Binance? I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> she runs Binance in Vietnam. Holy shit, bro! Yeah, so so she's coming on. Um, I have a pre-interview with her on Sunday, but yeah, so I'm I'm so fucking so, excited. Yeah, this anyway. Vietnam is. I think I think, I think Vietnam's blowing up, man. Like blowing the fuck up. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Q, man. We're going to talk about this later. Yeah, absolutely, bro. Yeah, I was deep in crypto in 2017 with me and my crew. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, yeah, man. So, all right. So let's talk about Top Chef because we're like, yeah. uh, we're an hour in. And deep I, in I, we're deep I, in it. I want to hear, I want to hear how you, um, I want to hear how people get into that. Um, because is it like an open casting call? Like, how does it work? Oh, but you still got to answer the E40 question a bit. But we'll, if you want to do that now, or I can't let that go. E4, let's answer E40. So E40 is a local Bay Area rapper um, that has connections with a lot of the legendary rappers in the industry. Like uh, people like Tupac was good friends. Um, but yeah, I'd say he's one of the forefathers of hip hop, mm -hmm. uh, not just here in the Bay Area, but in the United States. West Coast rap. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Top Chef. Yes. Ask away. Okay. So what is it? An open casting call that you got the word on? How did you get into that uh, show? Um, I think I got, um, at the time I was friends with this dude named Ryan Scott. Ryan Scott was on like season four or something like that. And he was an alumni. And, you know, we did some projects together and he, he had whispered to me. He was like, yo, you should apply for Top Chef. I applied for Top Chef, and at that time, I had some pretty decent. Um, I had a pretty decent culinary resume. Um, I had worked in um, a few fine dining establishments, both here in the Bay Area and in New York. And I think just through those connections and working for those sort of uh, quote unquote big names, um, in addition to my interview and like my personality, because they do interview, uh, you know. If your resume looks good, they do like a video phone call mm -hmm. interview. I got on. No one ever gets on for your first um, submission. Um, but if they call, and if you go far enough, if you go to the point where they give you like a physical interview, they'll, they'll invite you back next year. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I went pretty deep and pretty far into the interviews the first year I submitted. And then um, the following year, they asked me to come back. And that's a fairly rare thing to happen because some people apply for like six, seven years. Oh, shit. Before they even like get called on. So I have no idea. I always make a joke out of it. I'm all like, I, I guess this year is dry with Asian chefs, you know? So <laughs> I, I filled up that one spot, you know, just to make a joke. But um, I, I have no idea. If, if I did know, you know, you know, I would ask you to advertise for me so that way I can start charging people <laughs> to kind of vet them and advise them through the process. <laughs> Shit. So that that process is not very well, like, documented or well known. It's not like a, a protocol or a sort of thing that you can understand and codify. I think the thing with media is that um, I think the producers are probably always changing I think it's also dependent on the political climate. I think each year they're trying to find a new narrative, and I don't. I don't think it's definitive what those things is, uh, what those things are, and because there's so many factors, um, things like what city are they going to film in next? You know, what's going to be a highlight theme of that season? Stuff like that. All all those things play come into play, and that needs to be reflective of the cast that they're going to bring in. So I don't think there's a guarantee because you never know what's going to happen or new, what new variables are going to help got to come into play i think that's one of the things about live um reality tv you know it, it can't be planned in that sort of way yeah it's a great it's a great answer thanks man even think about that yeah um yeah. so 
you get to uh, audition and you you get approved to get onto the show, but so what's the sort of like the next steps that happen? So we do a few interviewing processes, and then if you do if you get approved and you pass those video um, interview rounds, they fly you in. You meet with the producers. Um, they fly and- you into what what city? It depends. It's usually LA because their studios are based in LA. Um, you fly in. It's it's super stricken off. It's like CIA, FBI status. They escort you everywhere. They lock you in your room. You can't go anywhere else um, because there's other cast. Uh, there's other potential cast members in that same hotel. Um, so we're all super blocked off. Um, and then if you make it, you get a phone call. I think it's, it's as simple as that. Um, but, and, you know, the day I made it, I was super stoked. I, you know, I didn't care if I won or not. Just to be included in that sort of cast with all these, like, top-rated chefs was super dope. Um, do you want me to tell you about the experience, or should I wait? No, no, no. I would love that. This is my next question. Yeah. Um, so the thing for me was that, wow, I get this vacation. It's unpaid, but it's this two-month vacation to cook and hang out in a new city. So I was all about it. In addition to that, you know, by me getting onto the show... You know, I was just super excited that I had an opportunity to tell my narrative on national TV. Right. And I didn't understand after the fact that Top Chef, it isn't just air nationally, it's it's international. It airs in every other country because it's that oh. big. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't after the fact where I started getting, uh, you know, people would hit me up from other different countries and be like, oh, I love your story. I'm Vietnamese from Australia or, you know, Vietnamese from like Germany or Denmark. I loved you on the show, blah, blah, blah. You know, so for me, that was my highlight that I felt most proud about more than winning one competition or I did a dish. Fuck all that shit. Like yeah. that shit goes. Yeah. You know, I, I just so, I felt so proud to represent um, as a Vietnamese American or uh, uh, as a Vietnamese person, you know, looking the way I look, I, I can break those narratives of what TV has given people what an Asian man is supposed to look like what an Asian man is supposed to talk like, you know, and what experiences an Asian man goes through. So, you know, for me, that will always be fulfilling, you know. Um, In addition to that, they put us up in a fat house. The refrigerator was, you know, uh, sponsored by Whole Foods. So so I I told you I grew up hungry, right? I, I was the one asking for hella shit, always eating in the fridge, in the middle, and I give a fuck. You know, like I was eating. All the other chefs were like, fuck, I'm stressing. You know, I need to I need to figure out what I'm going to do in my next court. I'm not hating on them. It's just they were really in their own stuff. I was just eating most of the time. <laughs> what city were you in? Denver. Denver. So it was, it was like, uh, it was the Colorado season. So we were in Denver, we were in Telluride, we were in Aspen, kind of everything in between. What kind of control does the producer have on the narrative? Like for real, or is it a lot of shit that's happening organically? Um, it, it's organic, but to a certain extent, they, uh, by the way, you know, editing is a fucking powerful ass tool, you know? Yeah. They can make you say seem that you say stuff because context is important context is everything you are saying at the end of the day but if you don't you know if you cut off the other half of what you actually said totally different meaning it may just highlight the sarcastic part and it it may sound like it may sound like you're being a dick you know 
Um, but I think the thing is, I, you know, I think the fact that I come from Oakland and the way I grew up, you know, I think the thing for me was that I, I didn't have that sort of fear. I didn't talk shit about people like that. They would always ask me about or suggest that certain people said certain things about me. And I'm all like, you know, I could give a fuck. I'm from Oakland. You got something to say, you say it to my face, homie. Like it's, it's right here. It's all good. It's all gravy. You know, and I think that's the sort of tone I kept on giving out. And because I was smiley all the time and, you know, I, I didn't seek to confront because I wasn't insecure in that sort of way. And, and, and if you saw it, you know, the way they edited me was I was smiley all the time and I was happy because yeah. that's all I gave them, you know. Um, but not not mad at them in any sense. It's just the way I dealt with the show. Other people deal with it differently. Um, but yeah, um, you know, I felt I felt great about how I conducted myself on the show, um, both in the competition and both during the interviews. Um, just know this too. Uh, you know, we would work six days straight. Um, if we filmed a competition or filmed cooking, that would be like a ten-hour, twelve-hour day. Um, and then um, the following day, we have to go into the studio, into the blue room to kind of like do voiceovers and talk about our opinions. And while we're waiting, they put us in a alcohol sponsored room <laughs> with security so we can't leave. So eventually, because we're bored as fuck, drink. people pick up and drink. And then when they drink, they immediately would go into the room and they would talk. So a lot of people who were talking on screen are talking with loose tongues. You know what I mean? That's crazy. Yeah. Fucking crazy. I I was on a reality show for a brief second in the 90s. But I'm not what? Gonna, what is that? I'm not going to talk about that shit. We'll talk about it off screen. <laughs> I've never said that. Oh my God. It was back in the 90s. I love it. That dates me, man. <clears throat> I got 10 years on you. Um, you bro. Asian no raisin. Um, how has it changed your life? I think this is a real thing. Some people on reality TV, um, coming off of it, they really get tuned into what the public says about them. And I've been fortunate enough where the public hasn't antagonized me in that sort of sense. If anything, they they were in my corner. Um, but I would say with those sort of blessings, I, I've, I've took the opportunity for exposure and I try to leverage it to my opportunities and my brand. And I did. Yeah. And I understood from the very beginning, the fact that I made it on the show was good enough for me. Other people were really hard on themselves that they didn't win. Um, just for transparency, I didn't win, right, but right. I had, I had a great time. Yeah. It was a great <laughs> leveraging point. Yeah, you know, um, so immediately coming off the show, you know, um, quoting E-40, slow, uh, slow feet don't eat. Um, I took my opportunity. I, I approached brands to do collaborations. I did a uh, sponsored um, traveling dinner series pop-up, and I would pop up in different places kind of like all over the country. Um, I had a, um, do you know what surf, surf air is? No. Surf air? Yeah, it's a private jet airline. I had a private jet airline sponsorship. Um, so, I, you know, I, I had a sponsorship. I, I had a brand ambassadorship with Whole Foods. So so I took my shit real quick before before anything. And I lined my shit up. I learned how to do a deck. I learned how to do a, a pitch deck. 
um, you know, bossed up my website, try to gear up my social media. I think my social media, I, I came out late with that. I, I haven't really been focusing on my social media. I've only started like three, four years ago, like three, maybe two years ago. Um, but I bossed all those things up. And then I was trying to find opportunities to work with brands who helped highlighted my story and gave me opportunity to do either media content or you know, some sort of advisory work, specifically being around um, okay. so, not just Asian American, but Vietnamese, you know? Yeah. So the episodes air and you finish the show, basically how much time goes on so you can collect the rain that's coming down. Like, how does it work? Oh, great point. Great point. So I, you, I can't say anything. So we finished filming in July, about July. I think yeah, right around July, and we uh, they don't announce until I think for our season it was around Christmas. So it's about five to six months. They don't announce so I, what? They don't announce the show is coming out, or they don't. They announce, don't announce the cast that's coming out. Okay, for the, for the so, next. For my leverage to be able to go to brands and say, hey, I was on Top Chef, I can't say that until December. See what I'm saying? So I had like five months to gear up all my stuff, line up well, who all my stuff. Who who made you understand that you you needed to gather all that shit and get it ready? I think um I think if I had any exposure to like hustle and bustle at all, I mean like, you know, I think that's a great question. I have no fucking idea. I think it's the books I read, you know. Um, um, right? I mean, like, I wouldn't have thought of that. I'm like, okay, I'm on a show. Cool. I'm, I get off the show and I'm like, I slide back into my own old existence. Who fucking lines up this shit and goes, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this all together and get ready to collect the rain that's about to come down in December. Like, I, that's some bow, bow wind shit. That, that, that's how he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I think? I think it's probably, um, um, I, I guess working in restaurants, I've always seen entrepreneurship from the, you know, from talking to investors and all that stuff. And I think I would sit down and pick their brain. They would give me advice on how to structure things. They would teach me how to like think outside the box. I think in addition to my parents being resourceful, I think it's a bunch of different things. Mm. You know, reading books about entrepreneurs, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just trying to, you know, and just 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 for the record, you know, like um, uh, in that sort of moment coming off a of top shelf, I wasn't bald. I, you know, I wasn't in a good financial place. I was just all right. I was barely making it at that time. Right before I got into top shelf, I was doing pop ups and I had some savings because um, going to my pop up years and doing my pop ups, I went broke. And while being broke, yeah, I was broke, bro, because pop-ups don't make money. Pop-ups don't make money, bro. So wait a minute. You saved up money to do pop-ups, and then you lost money at the end of that run. Yep. And I understood that because I knew that I wasn't thinking about doing pop-ups as making money. I was thinking of pop-ups as my marketing expense, if you will, is that if I put it out there enough, something would catch. And Top Chef caught San Francisco rising star caught, you know, they gave me a rising star. Mm. And if you, if you look at the class of rising star chefs, bro, they're like, they're like the nation's top chefs. And I got included in that class and I'm forever grateful for that. Right. 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 So like for me being in debt, but I was able to catch those things yeah. to go. And those things are the anchor of my brand now today. 
from what I'm doing today. But did you calculate that? Did you know that at the time? Like when you were doing the pop-ups? Because pop-ups, you're like, okay, well, people pay money. I make some money. There's some ROI there. But then at the end of it, you lost money. And you're like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to just chalk it up to marketing and my branding. I don't think it was. And I think I told you this before was that, you know, through high school, my parents were gearing me up to be a laborer. You see what I'm saying? I don't know if it was calculated, but I think more so it was sort of a desperation because for me, it was either this or this, you know? Um, and in addition to that, you know, people, you know, I've always thought about going back to be somebody else's chef for another restaurant. For me, that wasn't an option because I felt that my mental health space in working in a restaurant for uh, being a restaurant chef for another person, I was pulling 14, 15 hour days, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. And for me, that just didn't jive well with me. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like I could be myself. I, I, I felt like I was being exploited. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not blaming the restaurant owners by any means or any sense, but it's just a systematic issue for me. You know, like, you know, I, I could only do that for so long. You know, that's a young man's game. And then by, at that time, I already hit 30. I was going to go into my 30s and 40s working 15, 16 hour days. That's that's ridiculous. That's crazy. It's unreasonable. So I think the reason why I went that hard, went that far, because, you know, I, I don't feel like I had any other option, you know. And I think the worst case scenario, which I've never done or never considered doing, was that I could go and hang out with my old homies you know, and do bad things, you know? Yeah. Yep. You know, like, um, I think in my early chef career, I think from like my, probably like my mid twenties to my thirties, like, um, I think there was a moment where, you know, I moved in with my homies and, you know, there was consistently, um, codeine, promethazine and Coke on the table, you know? And for me, the moment that I drew the line, me being a restaurant chef living at that time I was living in East Oakland. Um, I think it was off of uh, 13th Ave and East 22nd. <laughs> um, super sketchy house, but it was cheap rent. My homies were there. They'd been there for a long time. The moment where I drew the line was um, when uh, a few of my friends who had had search warrants out for them, moved in with us temporarily to live with us. I'm like, I can't do that, bro. Like <laughs> we can't get raided, you know, when I'm working for a restaurant, you know, when I'm, when I'm this restaurant chef, it ain't, it ain't, it ain't. <laughs> so that's, I think, shit. yeah. So that's the moment where I had to move out and then just be cool with everything and really put both feet in to make sure that I'm completely have graduated and moved on from those life experiences you know it's either go live with my homies and be like them and do what they did or go and be a laborer with my parents and i felt that you know i don't think my parents were dismissing my my intelligence or my innate abilities to do other things i think they were just thinking on pure survival but i felt like i had so much to offer so much to articulate, so much to do, that I was willing to be that desperate and go towards those sort of measures to to find opportunity for yeah. myself. To cut yourself off the the old ways. Because I can't imagine like old homies calling you up and be like, yo, man, you changed. Like, 
Why did you? All the time. Right? All the time. All the time. And I think with, with, with every new year that I'm practicing writing and reading and speaking, when I talk to them, I'm like, wow, they're like, wow, you sound so different now. You sound so different now. But I find, I find, I find absolute pride in that where if I go to inner, when I go to like an inner urban school, you know, and I talk to junior high school kids or like high school kids and they, they see that I'm an example of success looking the way that I do. I feel like I give them hope where there is, it shows them that there is a way to be yourself and who you are. And if, and if you look like me, or even if your dad looks like me, you know, it doesn't mean you're doomed, you know? Yeah. This, this whole idea of, um, you know, what code switching is. Oh yeah, for sure. I, so, I learned, I learned that shit early on. Yeah. But I feel like when I get called out for it, like for, for, for participating in that sort of action, it's kind of unfair because I grew up there as part yeah. of me. Right. Yeah. So do I need to always talk like that? Do I need to always behave that way? Do I always need to wear a hoodie and, and, and you know, I could be whatever the fuck I want at any time I want. Right. So, so for me, it was the opposite for me. It was, that that I guess sort of ebonics or the slang that I use that was me who I really was. I didn't know how to speak outside of that. I had to learn how to code switch. So when a cop pulled you over, you wouldn't go to jail. Mm-hmm. Oh, better believe it, bro. I got my ass beat by Santa Clara police. Real talk. I'm putting you guys on blast right now. Real talk. <laughs> you know, and that happened in my youth. You know, in my 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 my, my adolescence. I guess my 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 mid to late teens. Um, and it was just over my friends giving cops attitudes and, uh, you know, I think it's kind of grave if it was invoked or not, but I think coming out of that experience, I had to learn how to code switch because whether the cop was a fair person or not, I wanted to know how to navigate through his or her prejudices so I don't go to jail. I don't get my ass beat. Or I don't get profiled as somebody else they thought who was a criminal. And that's a real thing. Every person of color of youth navigates it. And this is me as a lighter skinned man, yeah. you know, not, not even black yet. And I talk to my black homies all the time where when I'm out with them, they get targeted way before I am. Yeah, it's true. Man. So I, I think it's one of the things where it's like, Code switching, I never thought of it as a bad thing. I thought it was a mechanism for survival. If I didn't code switch, you know, for my job interviews, you know, in when I was 15, 16, 18, 19, 20, 21, I wouldn't have got hired. Real talk. Yeah, I think we all in in different sort of forms code switch. We all sort of it's subtle and you know it's part of life it, we 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 no have- matter no matter no matter who says they don't code switch everybody does i've seen all of my homeboys code switch when they talk to their grandma and their mom all of a sudden so bro what's good you whatever right and it's like hey mom how you doing okay mom like everybody code switch husband code switch with their wives vice versa People code switch with their puppies. I do. Yes. You know, like, and it's not about being fake or real. I just think it's about 
it's a reflection of the prejudice world that we live in. That's what I think. When you're talking about code switching between people, you know? That that is partly why I'm I have tattoos, but hidden tattoos. And I am tempted all the time for 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 more visible stuff like you. Yeah. But I it's so difficult for me to kind of like it's very energy consuming to sort of like explain things and 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 walk into environments and have to having to make people think you know i i'm just not built that way to to have people think that you know okay well what you see is not really what you're getting yeah yeah you're 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 really into that it seems i don't know if i'm into that uh, I don't know. I, does it give me? Do I get excited? Yeah, given let me the, take that back. I, I didn't mean it. You're into. You're accepting of that way that people sort of receive the the visuals, and then you're like, no, no, no. I'm a fucking. I'm not that. I'm not that person. Or I am that person, but I'm gonna explain. And the energy to articulate who you are is is abundant in you. You know, I think if anything, that's that's. You know, I'm a big fan of Tupac. It's Tupac's spirit, you know. Um, I think what Tupac taught me um, is that to own your identity, you are who you are, and I'm connected to you, whether you're white, black, Asian, whatever, a police officer or a teacher. You know, I'm your, I'm, you know, I am a fruition of my previous generation, no matter what community you come from. Yeah. I'm the byproduct of you guys. And whether you like it or not, I'm going to tell you who I am and what my truth is, because it's the previous generation that created us. We are the result of them, no matter how you want to put that. So I, I think for me, it's more about not just finding the opportunity or, or feeling the responsibility to convince people. I feel like I'm just kind of speaking my truth, you know, and, and really owning um, who I am. And I guess if, if I'm fighting anything, I'm fighting in my place to exist and to tell my story and to say that, you know, I, I deserve to stand right next to you, whether you're in a business suit or not. Yeah. How, how does it feel going to Vietnam for you? Um, it's, uh, I think my most recent trip was pre pandemic, obviously. You just lit up when I asked you that you're like, ah. I, I love Vietnam. I think the people are, I think there's a lot of love there. You know, I feel like people are very open. Um, I think I think people here in the United States they they have this thing about space and bubble. People in Vietnam don't. <laughs> so when I go when I walk through the airport in Vietnam, where they think they think I'm like an American rapper or Japanese Korean rapper or something, I don't know. You know, like little kids and people come up to me and they touch my hands. You know, and they they ask me a bunch of questions and stuff and. I think the opposite is true too, as well, too, where there's people suffering and they'll come and tug my shirt and there'll be like 30 other kids behind them, you know, asking for a dollar. So I think it's, uh, it's bittersweet for me um, because you see the suffering, but at the same time you see the love and the warmth. Um, and these are people who I don't know. These are complete strangers. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I think that's one of the things that I, I found very joyful, not just in cooking, not just in um, speaking or, or, or do media projects where people watch films or whatever, but just having the innate ability to, just by your presence, just by you showing up, just by you smiling at somebody, you're, you're able to change a person's day 
like that, you know? And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Uh, just to kind of pivot back, that's one of the many reasons why I, I volunteered and worked with incarcerated men for, I think about two years, right. committed every Monday to be there at 7am in the morning. And, and, and just to be very transparent, going to prison, even as a volunteer, is a very emotionally rough, very emotionally rough, you know? Um, seeing, walking through the yard, seeing all the things that's happening, dealing with the security guards, you know? Um, it, it's all stuff that I, 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 I would think that you would have to very, you would have to have a very thick skin to navigate, you know? Um, but once again, even navigating through that, showing up in that classroom, you know, just the fact that I'm there, those those men just they're 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 like I waited all week just to kind of like see you and hang out and cook food. Same thing with those kids; they've never seen me before. Like I I show up and they're touching my tattoos and they're just excited, like stuff like that. You know, I think I I I try to have and maintain my human element as a person, right, right. opposed to erase it. You know, so when you're um, in Vietnam. Uh, You've been back to Fukuok, yes? All the fucking time. Fucking love it. How has it, how has it changed from the stories in your mom and dad's mind to yeah. what you're witnessing? Because I think it's now uh, a very resorty kind of place, right? But most recently, that's a great question. But I, I think I, got, I caught a glimpse of what my parents came from in 96. In 96, I was 11 years old. In 96, they didn't have an airport. They had like a rock, like literally rock dirt runway for a small jet, a propeller jet, not, not even like a fancy jet, like a propeller, like old school jet, you know, um, and landing down there in my dad's village. Um, he lived in one of the alleyway um, residence, residences by the market, which is where the poor area is. Um, and I remember that they only had one light bulb for like a village of, or, or, or a residence area for maybe like 10 families. Yeah. Now one, that's the only electricity they had was one light bulb for a public bathroom. And I remember how amazing it was when you didn't have any electricity and the stars would come out and the moon would come out and it was bright enough so you can walk around the street. It was bright enough to, 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 to uh, to light up the walkway and, I, I, and, and as an 11 year old that shit fucking changed my life just understanding and seeing stuff like that you know seeing that there was a bigger world beyond like the city walls, concrete the hood you know what i mean wow how how big how many how many people what's the population of Fukuoka? right now yeah i mean back then I have no idea, but I tell you this, every time I go back, no matter where I walk, they know that I'm my dad's son because I look like him and because the tattoos, no one else on that island. I'm pretty sure even foreigners, like they don't have as many tattoos as I have, you know, looking like my dad's son, <laughs> you know. Do you, do you um, feel like there's this sort of island culture on Fukuok? Because, you know, everyone in the world, there's a sort of this idea of island culture, right? Yeah, bro. Like, you know, your wife's from Hawaii. Do, yeah. do, you, feel, do you feel like there's a, an island culture in Fukuok? Absolutely, bro. Um, you know, both, both sides of my family were both free divers. You know, there's oh. a in our family. If somebody gets sick, they're like, did you go to the ocean this week? You know, if, you, if you're not feeling good, you need to go see the ocean. Wow. So we're islanders for real, bro. 
you know. Um, you know, my mom's side of the family, they make mom as well too. So we're, everything in the ocean is us. Um, and I, I would definitely compare the people. Uh, Fukuoka is like Hawaii. There's the natives there who's been there for generations and there's tourists, you know, people coming there to find opportunity to, you know, make a buck off the economy. Fukuoka's the same way. My parents were natives there. My parents, my lineage, we're for sure natives there, you know? Um, and I think there's a lot more complexities to Fukuoka too, not that it's just being Vietnamese, but I think a hundred years plus back, Vietnam actually used to belong to uh, Cambodia. So it was Khmer territory. Oh, my grandmother, um, I think, yeah, my, my, uh, I think my great grandmother was my grandmother. My grandmother is of Khmer lineage, you know? So we're Viet, Chinese, Khmer, all the mix. Yeah. You know, we, you and I share, I could see it when I watch you and your mother interact. We share that, you know, um, very much. I have a very loving mother. Have you always had that good relationship with your mom? I just want to make things very clear. Like that, that, that movie um, about my mom, but my father, but that's, a, that's basically a love letter to my mother. And pre that movie, she has never told me any of those things ever in my life. I don't know any of those things. The reason why I made that movie is because I wanted to find a way that my mom and dad would tell their stories to something, if not me. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. My parents suffer from PTSD, man. There's, that's, a, that's a struggle to live with today. You know, like, just for example, I don't think people understand what PTSD is. Um, like my mother, she, she, um, I, I would find treats, cookies, and candies tucked away in the most random places like the bathroom. Because I think in her thinking, and this is very common for people who've been through war, is that they're, they're, they're scared that their food might be taken away from them. So they hide it in these crazy weird places. Damn. You know what I mean? Um, what's another thing? Um, my mom um, needs to know where everyone is. If I'm at work, she'll blow up my phone like a million times. This is me as an adult, like, you know, out like of how last week. <laughs> and she'll tremble and cry if she can't get a hold Mind of me. And that's a, war, that's a war thing, too. It's like, you don't, you know, you need to know where everyone is. Um, I think I, I mentioned this earlier. My father, growing up, nailed all the windows shut. And that's like prison, bro. Like, literally. He nailed, I, I shit you not, he nailed the windows shut. Because he said he was afraid people might come in and hurt us. And though, you know, the very common saying with my father, and he said it in Vietnamese, is that, you know, why'd you leave the door open? Or no, we're not going to open the window. Because someone, someone might come in here and slice our throats. And at that time, I'm maybe five or six years old. My, my sister's nine. You don't, you don't say stuff like that. To you. So, so that's the thing about PTSD is that, you know, I, I have to struggle with my parents. They refuse to get, um, I, I don't want to say refuse, but they don't understand how they've been scarred and affected. Yeah from a mental health sort of perspective. And I've always been struggling with them to 
have conversations with them, not just about their mental health, but about their experiences. And this is my first scratch at that. And I think we did an amazing job, my crew and myself. By the way, you know, I was the um, I was a partner in the media company that created that film, and I'm a co-executive producer as well too. So, like, in conjunction with myself and my team, we were able to to get this all on film, you know, which was a huge blessing. But well, I tell you what, that that piece it was 30 minutes. It was tight, and it yeah. was very moving. Is very emotional, and yeah. you could feel it was very. If, I did. I thought it was another company that just showcased you. I didn't realize that you yeah. were behind the production. Yeah, so, great job on that. But I think that was the only way that would have been possible because if it was a production company, my mom and dad would have been open. Mm. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. You know, guarantee it. So it's one of those things. Not that I, I don't mean to brag by any sense, but like. We did it because we have to, right, you know, right. you know, there was no other way, you know. Um, and, and that's the thing. It's like my relationship with my parents is still a struggle. Oh, really? It's just, it's still, communication still very difficult, you know. Um, it was very, very hard for them. Would I ask them to ever do that again? No. But it was gratifying, I think, for us and our, and our family, because at least we have a story told about our family and the fact that it's being celebrated is just extra you know i, I just want people to be really real because i want to be raw about it because i don't want people to think that everything's like happy cinderella sort of story yeah. because it's not because mental health ptsd the struggles of other mothers and fathers who are refugees it doesn't end with a movie like that you know and i want to share that sort of narrative with other people who um, have parents like my own who have suffered the same thing, if not worse, you know? What, um, thank you for sharing that with, about your parents. Um, it's, it's hard, it's hard, but you know, at, at the end of the day, it's about owning our narratives. It's about being vulnerable and to be vulnerable. I try my best to be factual because I don't want to misrepresent because we're talking about pain here and no one else in our space is offering that uh, offering that pain. Right. For me, it's a responsibility. You know what I mean? So what is your next steps? What is your ultimate dream to, um, to life? Um, I think it continues to change. I think um, I find that I have an entrepreneur spirit and I, I get passionate about a lot of projects. Um, I think at the in the immediacy, I want to further establish myself in the food media space. Um, it wasn't too long ago where I was fully funded by uh, Visit Oakland to do a TV show on PBS. Um, but however, as of March 2020, the Day Gavin Newsom issue shelter in place are our funding got pulled from us because our funders are in the tourism space, mm. understandably so. So I think it's one of those things where I very blessed continuously to have these opportunities blooming, um, but there's still a lot of work for me to do to get to the places where I want to go. I, I really don't like talking about politics on the show, but sure. I still have to ask you, like, what was your opinion on what, happened and transpired with the governor of California during that time period? I think, I don't know. So I'm not a politician. 
I don't know how governors work, right? But I'm convinced that if we had a better president like Donald Trump, a lot of shit would have been a lot better for a lot of other people, in particular all the states. Okay, so you're it's not really you don't think it was really about Newsom as much as it was higher up. It could have been both. Mm-hmm. It could have been both. I don't know, you know. I think I say this, and I think this is a fair criticism, right? As liberal as California is, California can absolutely do a better job for its fucking people. Absolutely. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about just Newsom, but just all the governors prior to that. You know, I, and I'm just saying from what I know, I don't want to speak beyond it. Yeah. But Salesforce is a multi-billion dollar company. They built a billion dollar public park in San Francisco. At the base of that billion dollar park, there's a homeless encampment of people suffering and doing opioids. That doesn't make sense to me. And I go by the old saying, fuck all the excuses, right? And the fish stinks from the head down. So it goes up to the mayor, the mayor goes up to the governor and the governor goes up to, so, you know, in actuality, my brother, like I blame all of them. I don't want to say, or even suggest the fact that I don't have faith in, um, in democracy. I, I think democracy is a beautiful idea. However, I think there's a lot of things we need to fix for people, citizens like yourself and myself to participate in the right ways so we can be heard. And I think we're very, very far from that. You know, the ongoing, American, yeah, it's that? an ongoing process, I think, democracy in the US. Yeah, like I feel like I feel like the America that you know that had um everyone from jfk to and i'm not, I'm not praising these people because i because i'm going to say ronald reagan and <laughs> george bush but from the america that was jfk ronald reagan george bush bill clinton all the way up to obama to trump to biden those are all different americas that we're all experiencing yeah, so you know what i mean so it's like it's hard for me as a person to blame one person. I feel like maybe it's a little bit of everyone's responsibility to kind of take care of shit, right? Um, and that's why one of the reasons why, you know, I, I'm such a big um, advocate for community and community services. That's why I donate my time. Um, you know, I serve on boards. I give my resources, my services away to uh, nonprofit organizations here in Oakland, specifically uh, Asian Health Services and uh, Oakland Asian Cultural Center, because those are two institutions that I passionately care about. Real Foods Restores as well. Those are all institutions I really care about because they provide safe spaces for people. And without them, my life wouldn't have changed. And I feel like if other people who are able to give would do the same thing, and just you know giving resources, I think a lot can change. I think we can't just bank on the government. I think we have to also bank on our own community. You know what I mean? You know, I um, I hear you and I listen to um, how involved you are with the community. And it it feels like Oakland has this sort of magical, formative power on artists and the community like Ryan Coogler, right? 
yeah. there's people that are coming out of Oakland that that do their thing have this sort of other deeper understanding of community for for whatever reason that is. Where does that come from? No, I had this conversation. My wife had this conversation with me not too long ago, and she says, like, I think when we first dated, she she didn't understand why I was doing so much, and literally. Um, even though as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm working six days a week, seven days a week, whether it's on my phone or in front of the computer, whatever, like I'm always doing stuff. And, and a good chunk of that is community service. And I think in the beginning, she didn't understand why I was exhausting myself. And as she started to learn more about me and as my stories go more public and the personal stuff that I share with her, she started to understand this. She was like, I understand now. And the reason why you work so hard is because without these mentors, without these community services, without these people in your life who, who, who opened the door for you, you wouldn't have had these opportunities. And I see that that's why you work so hard to pay it forward, to give it back to that other kid who may be in your same boat, if not worse. So, so it's not about, you say it's an understanding. For me, I call it ethics. I want to be able to sleep at night, bro. You know, it's kind of like, you know, like, how how would I go on with my job knowing that community center that helped me out shut down? I don't have a choice. You know, I don't feel like I have a choice, you know? Um, and, and that's why I try to do the things that I do. I'm, I'm not Bill Gates. I'm not the Bill Gates Foundation. Um, but I do try to corral my resources. I think the thing that I'm really blessed about is um, the, there's a lot of Fortune 500 companies here in the Bay Area. And I, I'm very proud to say that from everyone from Airbnb to LinkedIn to Twitter to uh, Whole Foods, you know, they've approached me to ask how they should participate in helping the community out. And I'm very proud to say that I've had those conversations and helping them, you know, um, visit Oakland as well, too. You know, like to, to me, uh, it's an ethics thing, you know, more more so than something to put on our resume. So. Well, Thu, I really respect the work that you're doing both on your resume and <laughs> on, you know, in your private life with um, all of the philanthropic um, endeavors. And, you know, I thank you. Well, let, let, let me make this thing very clear. For me to qualify as a philanthropist, I need to have, have I need to have M's, bro. I need to have millions. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I think but, philanthropist yeah. just means that you love humanity, right? And you yeah, I, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing with within our community, and you know the thank kind of flavors that you are providing, both figuratively and literally, to um to to the world that we live in today. Thanks, bro. I'm I'm trying, bro. You know, like I, I'm I, I don't have a map that I'm following. I'm just trying to figure it out. So you know, hopefully other people will jump in and help me figure it out together, you know? Yes, yes. I, I think you do have a lot of uh, people, a lot of fans, you know, friends of mine who know you are big fans of, of the work that you do. And so thank you again for coming on uh, and speaking with me today and spending time with me. And hopefully we can catch up uh, in the near future about uh, the next project that you do. Awesome, man. Thank you, Kenneth. This was super awesome to, you know, be on here and listening to my story and narrative and all that stuff. By the way, you guys tell me what show you were on in the 90s. So, you know, I'm following up with that. <laughs> I'll tell you right after this. Thank you. Thank you so much again. Absolutely. Thanks, brother. All right, man. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. 
The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.